I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, Willow. Holy crap, we're in the studio. Yes, it's a breath of fresh air. I, and we're a not, vaccinated breath yeah, of fresh we're air. Yeah, we're, not, uh, we're breathing in, hopefully, each other's antibodies, so we're actually probably getting stronger <laughs> sitting in the same room, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, these are the horrible things that I have learned, again, that uh, because I understand how viruses spread... I was led to the inevitable understanding that human beings are constantly spitting in each other's faces. <laughs> but it is I am very happy to be in the studio spitting in you guys' faces <laughs> because this month we are, of course, talking about Willow from the year 1988, directed by Ron Howard, the director of Splash, Cocoon, Parenthood, A Beautiful Mind, Da Vinci Code, Solo, A Star Wars Story. And oh, yeah, that one. Eventually. <laughs> well, you know, it's a it's a mixed bag. But, you know, and again, in the screenplay by Bob Dolman, who did Far and Away, The Banger Sisters, and How to Eat Fried Worms. I guess he was also a writer on SCTV. Oh, wow. And it's based on a story by George Lucas, of mm-hmm. course, Star Wars, Indiana Jones. So, okay. Um, and joining us in the studio, oh, my God, it feels so good to say that. And actually see you guys in person now. And be able to read body language. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, we're sitting, of course, with the uh, returning guest and co-host of the dearly missed and hopefully eventually returned View from the Gutters comic book podcast, <laughs> Mr. Tobiah Panshin. Welcome back, Tobiah. Thank you guys so much for having me. It is such a pleasure to be here in person. Oh, yeah, it's great. Oh, it's good to see you guys. I mean, recording or not, it's good to be in the room with you guys. Good and also a little bit weird. Yeah. Uh, I was actually talking about this with uh, my very good friend, uh, frequent guest of the show and podcast guest host, Joe Preddy. The very first time that he and I got to hang out post-vaccination, it feels a little bit like we're committing crimes. Yeah. <laughs> Just being unmasked in the same physical location with another person. You feel exposed. And you don't, it's like we're enough of an indoor cat now that we don't quite know how to relate to people. It's, and it's a little uncomfortable looking at people's faces. An unmasked, per, an unmasked person is like a car driving down the street at 80 miles per hour. You're like, oh, we have you re- recoil in horror. The attitude towards masks is, is hilarious <laughs> because we've reversed a weird stigma that seeing somebody with a mask used to probably be jarring and scary. Yeah. And now seeing somebody's nose and mouth is jarring and scary. Actually, what's most jarring and scary, at least for me, is seeing somebody's nose and not their mouth. <laughs> because it means that that person is at least willing to like go with the socially mandated thing enough to have a mask, but is bold enough to very visibly wear it improperly oh. and conti- has continued to do so for at least a year. And that is somebody who strikes me as an incredibly potentially dangerous person to have to deal with. Possibly a sociopath. Yeah, like that is that is a weird mix of character traits. Like if they just had no mask at all and they're just being a rebel, like that's one thing. But the fact that you chose to bring one with you and yet make a very visible statement of fuck you to the rest of the world, that's that's danger. That's the, that's stranger danger place. <laughs> So, so Tobiah, we are of course talking about the 1988 
fantasy movie Willow. Um, if you had to sum up this movie in a paragraph or two, what is Willow all about? Uh, so we begin Willow, uh, as is very traditional with many of these fantasy stories, with a text crawl uh, <laughs> that tells us that there is a prophecy of a baby who will destroy our local evil sorceress queen, Bev Morda, because we all know how dangerous babies are. <laughs> uh, and the film opens with Bev Morda trying to kill the baby and that baby being spirited away. It's thrown into a river, much like Moses on a basket of reeds, mm-hmm. uh, where it is eventually found by Willow Ulfgood, who is of a race of people called Nelwins, who are technically and legally distinct from hobbits. <laughs> yes. Hashtag yes. OC, do not steal. <laughs> uh, and Willow sets off on a quest with a few of his fellow villagers to return the baby to her people, uh, which sees him ultimately gathering a party of heroes around him, including Mad Mardigan, the swordsman, who is technically and legally distinct from Han Solo. <laughs> Hashtag OC, do not steal. Uh, and Finn Rizal, the good sorceress, uh, and they go on an even better quest to destroy Bev Morda and probably save a kingdom or something, because honestly, it's kind of vague. It is a little bit vague. Oh, Mike, I quit. I quit the podcast. I quit. No, I don't actually quit. But oh, my God. Mike, I did this get your movie, text when, this... you, when you finished watching this movie. Oh, so it had been 25 years. How long has it been since? When, when was this movie made? 30, this movie was made in 1988. So this movie 33? came out when I was nine years old. So that would make this movie. 32 years old. Yeah. I probably saw it when I was a teenager was the last time I saw it. So 25 years ago or so. Okay. Okay. Everyone has On a the different. Table. Everyone has a different uh, reaction when you see movies about things. I just think of. I, I think. I think about people re-experiencing traumas. So let's just say you were a victim of a terrible car accident. If were you wa- attacked by a nilwin? <laughs> I was. I was. No, I was transformed into a goat by a by a magic wand. No, if you're a victim of a car accident, when you watch a movie and there's a car accident, you probably get taken out of that movie a little bit because you're remembering like oh that was that was an awful time in my life or like if you're a recovering addict it probably is really difficult to watch you know requiem for a dream or something you're just like i can't i can't watch this um i'm trying to imagine the fantasy trauma that you must have gone through (laughs) it's a laura dannon so let's talk about the small the tiny baby elephant in the room okay a laura dannon is character in this movie it's not a doll. It's not stop motion. It's a it's a person or twins. Oh yeah. Um. And Alora Dannon is she's the MacGuffin. <laughs> I guess she's she's a princess. She's a baby. She's a MacGuffin. She's like a between Terminator One and Terminator Two. John Connor. Right. She's she's more like a football than anything else. Yeah. Because she's being passed around. She she's honestly about seven minutes of reaction B roll. Yes. So <laughs> Alora Dannon is the character that Willow Ulfgood has to carry around and get her to the Good Witch. So. Uh, so they can save the kingdom or whatever. Yeah. Whatever have you? And because it's a baby, and because labor laws are such that they are, it's played by twins. Um, and also, the only time you see, you never you don't see this baby like at a long shot on a horse being carried by the guy who's the Nazi in Indiana Jones, right? Yeah. You see him extreme close up, and then you see Willow Offgood holding her in her in, in his holding a doll in his hands. Mm-hmm. The problem is this entire movie is. One scenario after another of baby in danger, extremely small infant in danger, cut to like some action sequence happening, cut back to super close up of baby in danger. And and being having had two small children, every time, every time you have something like 
<laughs> something like the baby being passed off to a horse on a cart with its two wheels missing and it's just like what the fuck is going on and then they cut back to the baby and then immediately I'm like oh god oh no and obviously my rational part of my brain says the baby was never in danger. The baby was, this was not no, the adventures of Milo and, and Otis. And I and I've watched this movie before. I know okay. that the baby does not crush under the hoof of a horse. So there's not an upcoming upcoming trauma regarding child death in this. But every time I just had to be just like oh, take a breath and then okay. get to it. And it's the great thing because it's I mean it's not it's a terrible thing, excuse me. It's a terrible thing because I want to get back into the story because I want to be like, oh, this is fun that they're sledding down this hill, Willow and Mad Mardigan are sledding down the hill, and then they cut to the reaction of the baby again, and I'm like, oh, no. You're, you're, it's the baby. F- okay, so, <sighs> okay, what year was your oldest born? In 2013. Okay, so if you'd yeah. seen this movie in 2012, would you have had this reaction? No, not at all. Uh, 100% not at all. Because it's just some, it's, it's a bit of anxiety that you get as, just <laughs> as a natural course. Unless you're a total and complete sociopath, it's a bit of anxiety that you just get with you. You load onto your shoulders and you take it with you forever. See, now I'm afraid to make you rewatch the Jurassic Park movies because that's <laughs> no. all about child endangerment. Well, I mean, but this is a this is a baby, so there's <laughs> something about so they must have like selected out of a million different Anglo-looking babies the kind that looks adorable and helpless in this way that Elora Dannon's character does. And there's something about that where you're just like, hey, it's a baby, it's a baby, it's a baby. And I have to imagine more than half of the audience that aren't weren't children who this movie was made for, their parents going along with it had to have been just like shifting uncomfortably in their seats and going like "Ooh, i don't like that well you know casey you see the problem though is that you're a lot younger than the people you remember our childhoods they would let us go into the woods for hours. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I mean, I definitely saw this movie by myself. For I, sure. there's, you know how many stories I've heard of people finding porno in the woods? I mean, <laughs> people who are like, yeah, yeah we got to get into a, you know, it's not as bad as say like the, you know, it. We're not getting into a rock war with another group <laughs> of children. But there were times it felt like it could go there. So I think that maybe our parents didn't love us. I think uh, that's what the, that's what the message was. They were just they were just tapped out. They're yeah. just like fuck this parenthood thing. Yeah. So, you know, I mean at a certain time in a certain place, like you could afford to lose a couple oh, of babies. Like you oh, expected yeah. to lose oh, yeah. at least a couple of babies. Yeah. And you know, especially in a production like this. So that's why you had twins. <laughs> well, and you know, yes. I I don't want to dismiss what you're saying at no. all because yeah. you know, during this whole uh, year of quarantine, I've been rewatching a lot of things, including Star Trek: The Next Generation, and I honestly feel like I had to skip about half of that series because every third episode is some weird alien virus that's doing horrible oh, things, oh, yeah. oh, and it was just too real in that moment. But I admit I wasn't looking through the entire film, but I'm like ninety percent sure. That they had that baby in like a back office somewhere with just a really tight camera on it. Oh, yeah. And they were like jangling keys above it (laughs) or like had the scary puppet so it would make the worried face. And that baby was never actually on any of those sets. I'm pretty sure it was a doll through the entire movie. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Ron Howard wasn't trying to scare this baby. (laughs) Because I, I mean, even I mean, even probably the worst director to work for. Of course, we're talking about The Shining's own <laughs> Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick is Stanley Kubrick. If you just look at the way that Shelley Duvall was treated in that movie, you just go, "Oh my God, is that kid okay?" And it turns out that kid never saw anything, never looked at anything scary. And I think the baby had it even better. Yeah, 
Uh, not that you remember that much from a baby. You just remember it in your bones in ways that you kind of vaguely describe to a therapist years I, later. I mean, I looked at the IMDb credits and those two girls, those two now adult women, never did anything else. So it was just their parents got paid, I don't know, hopefully they got paid 100000 bucks or something. So they make a college fund for their kids or maybe blow it on buying a boat. I and don't know. in They in, haven't done anything since. In the world of child actors, that's called a victory. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that is the ultimate win. So this movie came out, at, I think, really the tail end of the golden age of the 1980s fantasy movie. Yeah. And it wasn't until I actually wanted to look at the historical movie context of this that I realized how many fantasy movies there were in the 1980s. I mean, oh, it's amazing. I, I mean, this is just a not even an incomplete list. Neverending Story, Labyrinth, Highlander, Excalibur, Conan the Barbarian, Krull, Dragon Slayer, The Princess Bride, Ladyhawk, Dark Crystal, Legend, Beastmaster. And that's not even counting all the direct-to-video knockoffs right. of all of these movies, like, you know, Ator the Fighting Eagle, or Your Hunter from the Future, or my favorite, the Deathstalker series. <laughs> well, and I think that you're leaving out the two films that this most reminded me of, which is Ewoks, Caravan of Courage, <laughs> yes. and Ewoks 2, The Battle for Endor. It's like yeah. a, Those movies were like a transitional form between Willow and Star Wars, if you really look at it. Oh, I'm pretty sure one of them, the ba- main bad guy, is an evil sorceress. Oh my, yeah, it is. That, that's true. Oh my God. <laughs> He's been moving, the, George Lucas was moving in this direction for a while. Oh yeah, no, this movie is very clearly... On the same trajectory that Lucas started with mm-hmm. Return of the Jedi with the Ewoks right. and just continued throughout the course of the 1980s. Yeah, it's it's funny because to put it in the George Lucas context, uh, we are five years after Return of the Jedi, which as a kid felt like an eternity, but now doesn't feel that long. Um, Star Wars in 1988 was a dead property. It's so weird to think that. Yeah. Like we were living in a world where... It was entirely plausible and very likely that Star Wars was done, that we weren't going to revisit it. We weren't going to, that until those Timothy Zahn books came out, it was dead. The, the Marvel comic was over. The two cartoons that they made were over. The Ewok movies were over. Don't I think there were maybe a couple like peg warmers of the Lobot action figure you could find at KB still. <laughs> I mean, those kind of characters, probably him and Snaggletooth, a couple guys from Jabba's Palace. But, you know, you know, hanging up there with the Secret Wars Kang. Um, <laughs> it was dead. And, you know, just the year after this, he was going to wrap up Indiana Jones. This really felt like George Lucas was going to try to start his next franchise with Willow. That, you know, Star Wars was his Flash Gordon. Indiana Jones was his old, you know, movie serial adventure. And this was his Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And again, like you said, it really feels like a just up to the line of legally actionable, but not (laughs) Lord of the Rings. Not like the totally legally actionable sort of Shannara, (laughs) which went even further. Um, but well, I mean, what is uh, I mean, you, you just you said it in your intro is that so much of the I mean, it's the Campbellian myth thing again. He's using the hero's journey again. But so many of the characters are just like transposed as Star Wars characters. 
Like it, like Willow is Luke Skywalker, Mad Mardigan is Solo, uh, Fenrizel is Obi Wan Kenobi. The brownies are C three PO and R two D two, right? But not as good. Yeah, this is, but you know, Elora is Leia, although she doesn't get to do do all that. She's much. She's technically the Death Star plans. <laughs> <laughs> the Skull Mask guy is a, the the low rent Vader. You know, Bab Morda is the Emperor. So it's like he just had take. There really is very little variance in them just transposing. Star Wars sci-fi characters into these specific fantasy characters. I had heard somewhere, and I think this is probably entirely apocryphal. I don't know if this is true at all, but that George Lucas at one point had tried to get the rights to Flash Gordon and Star Wars ended up being his creation. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I, I feel like f- I've heard the same thing. He ended up making something better, I think, because then he pulled in all of the, the samurai stuff. So, you know, Taking something that's sort of older, giving it high production value, modernizing it, that's kind of George Lucas's M.O. And I don't think there was any attempt since maybe the 1970s to do a Lord of the Rings movie. And it feels in some way like he's trying to do that a bit more. And, you know, again, those Ewok movies, especially the second one, are very much fantasy movies. I think it was the first one. I think there's like giant spiders and an evil sorceress in it, the first one. Um, so yeah, it is it is a quest with a with a child that we do have a a race of small people who live in a bucolic village who are kind of isolated, and that one of them uh, is is bestowed upon something that is dangerous and draws dark forces to them, and they have to go on a quest. That is that is the very heart of Lord of the Rings, and that this person has to become brave who has never had to be brave before. That he's a farmer, and. The, I'm still trying to figure out what is the 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 system of government that they have in the Nelwyn village. There's a lot of this stuff that's kind of vague. Is Burglecut, is he just the old man Potter or is he the mayor? Because I can't, or is the High Aldwin the I'm mayor? pretty sure that Billy Barty, the High Aldwin, is like the leader and Burglecut, whom I love and adore <laughs> for no good reason. Um, because he's completely awful. Uh, he's, he is the old man Potter. You know, he he is the wealthy guy who throws all of his weight around, but has no actual like on paper power. Yeah, it's all just soft power. He does sort of he just goes up to Willow and doesn't understand why he's plowing his fields, because I guess he's the equivalent of Nelwyn Monsanto. (laughs) He's like, where did you get these seeds? And he's just like, I have the monopoly here. And I'm like, what a fucking asshole. But that guy just seems to really love playing this character. He, yeah, the, the guy playing Burglecut is just fucking owning it. <laughs> you know, sometimes when you're a character actor and your character is like the bad guy, you just you do that for as long as you can and you get as much mileage out of it as you can <laughs> because, you know, you'll never go without work. And uh, it's it was kind of interesting. I this is a, I. I just gonna play my table. I, I think the, I didn't know what to expect with Casey's negativity. I didn't know it was oh. baby fear. Um, I get it, but I think what what I kind of get out of this movie is I think it's very uneven. Oh yeah. I think that it's a movie that never quite gathers its tone. That there are these moments that are almost brilliant and amazing, and then there's moments that just verge on embarrassing, mm-hmm. and the, and. And all between it, they never quite thread the needle. So I always kind of feel like I'm rooting for this movie to get better because all the pieces are in place for it to be better. And I think it just kind of comes down to the script. So you're you're waiting for it to get more exciting because there are moments of where of rising tension 
And then there are the moments when Mad Mardigan disappears and you're like, well, what are we doing? Until Mad Mardigan comes back and then plot happens. Or Val Kilmer shows up with a sword because I think yeah. he's great. I think yeah. Val Kilmer's always great. Yeah. I think the, the dialogue is very clunky. And a lot of the time you have an actor like Val Kilmer and um, Warwick Davis was only 18 when yeah, he made this movie, but he's got a lot of natural charisma. He, he exudes the same kind of thing that Tom Hanks does where you like him. It's hard to dislike... Uh, Warwick Davis. He's just a very sweet-natured guy, even when he's the leprechaun. <laughs> um, and I, I think that 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 those two elements are able to overcome a lot of this dialogue, but not all of it. Like there are parts of this movie, and we're going to talk about the fucking brownies for a bit, but mm -hmm. <laughs> where the dialogue just seems super obvious. Where you, like you look at old Silver Age comic books, you'll have a, a panel where Batman is punching a henchman. And his word bubble is, I'll take care of this henchman by punching him. Um, <laughs> and it's like, I can see that, Batman. You're punching him. Um, there's a bit of this movie that feels like that, too. And one of the most egregious parts is when um, the the brownies steal the baby. And we know that they stole the baby because they're flying I stole by the baby. I stole the baby. <laughs> I stole the baby. <laughs> And it's like, well, I could have had a moment of wondering what is going on and let the story tell me that or let the performance tell me that. There's another one where Mad Martigan gets released from a cage and immediately gets up and goes, I feel better. <laughs> and I know Val Kilmer is a good enough actor that you could, again, this is one of those things, take a scalpel, cut a couple of these lines out, let him do something sort of different, give this script another pass because the, the charm of these actors can only go so far. And some of these are George Lucasinian problems and some of these aren't, but there's well, enough good stuff there that keeps you watching. I, I think a lot of them are George Lucasinian problems. <laughs> I mean, in, in reading up for this discussion, um, one of the things that I discovered is that this is actually based on a story that Lucas wrote, I believe before they actually did star Wars and if you've ever read some of the early George Lucas drafts before they actually made Star Wars, this reminds me a lot more of those than what we actually got on the screen. Hmm. It's also George Lucas at kind of the height of his my movies are for kids phase. Yeah. Like, you know, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back started out at a much more like older teenager adult level that were accessible for kids and as we got into like Return of the Jedi, he started pushing it younger. And then, you know, the droids cartoon and the Ewoks cartoon and the Ewoks movies like got very kidified. And that's the moment at which this movie came out. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, as we're getting back into doing Star Wars again in the very late 90s, you know, you had the Phantom Menace, which had Jar Jar Banks, which was still like very kitty like lowbrow kid humor. Jar Jar stepping in poop. Yeah. And know. I would say that those things got a bit better yeah. as they move forward. And as George Lucas has become divorced from Star Wars, it's kind of trended into that more like teen adult range of things while still being accessible for kids. But this film is very much like the depth of that trough of you have these really interesting Lucas ideas but he doesn't really know how to capitalize on them and he doesn't know how to edit them. 
but he has all the power to say what's going to happen. And so we get something that's kind of just like a lot, like a bullet pointed list of these are good ideas that you haven't executed right. Yeah. And they don't flow into each other. There's a, there's a lot of little things in this. Um, again, it's that weird humor. Like you said, the kidified humor, burgle cut, getting a bird poop on his face. Yes, exactly. Um, that sort of stuff. I mean, like it's, it's, it's a very child focused film. Like this is not an adult fantasy film. Like we would think of the Lord of the Rings movies that we got from Peter Jackson. Mm -hmm. This is very much aimed at kids. And by aimed at kids, I mean, kind of dumb. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that it doesn't okay. have to be. Okay, but and I, I, I under, yes, this is totally true. The inclusion of the brownies obviously makes it totally clear. But I, I my counterpoint is when after you get to the Daikini Tavern scene, this movie gets horny and never stops being horny for the rest of the whole it's thing. Weirdly and, horny, and I don't understand. <laughs> okay, so you, you have you have cross dressing Mad Mardigan making a making a fake breast out of apples. You have Kevin Pollock falling in love with a cat. You even have a fairy kissing Willow's nose, and mm-hmm. you're like, what the fuck is going on? But in the, this the strange movie? thing. So Mad Mardigan <laughs> is 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 disguised as a lady because he's sleeping with somebody's wife. Uh, and this guy is apparently very jealous. So he puts on a disguise and pretends to be her sister. The guy comes in and in front of his wife starts <laughs> pawing Matt Mardigan. And now that I know that his breasts are is a stuffed bra full of apples and this guy's pawing him. <laughs> Why, that I'm gonna guy, keep going. Yeah, he just. I guess that's not a weird thing for him to feel a breast that feels like apples. Um, well, I guess yeah, a lot of women in our modern day and age keep things of use to them in their brassieres. <laughs> yeah. And who is to say that that has not traditionally always been the case? I don't want to, you know, kink shame. Maybe the apple breast thing is this dude's thing. But then later, when the Nakmar guards come in, the bad guys. And reveal that it's Madden Martin is just a guy. This guy is enraged. He has a he has a some real issues when he finds out Mad Martigan is not a woman and starts randomly punching people. <laughs> so we got some real gay panic going on with this dude. And, trans panic, really. Yeah, trans panic. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on with this guy? Um but yeah, it's just a Mad Martigan is an interesting one because like you said, it's very much the Han Solo archetype. Um, the thing that I do like that they do with him, that they don't necessarily do with Han Solo, which is that he tells you right off the bat that he is the greatest swordsman who ever lived, and they delay giving him a sword for a really long time. So you get to see him kind of bumble around a little bit. You know that he's good in a fight. He can do little things, but you never hand him a sword for like 40 minutes, and I kind of love that delayed um, that delayed reaction. That it actually does live up to it. And he gets a sword in his hand and he kicks all sorts of ass. And he does a little thing that I do like where he kind of flips the sword and catches it. And uh, when he's kind of showing off to Willow, this is a very Hansolian kind of moment, flips it and immediately slips on some ice, but doesn't <laughs> drop the sword. <laughs> and I think of all the little humor bits, that's the one that works the best. Yeah, which, I mean, it's really the most interesting thing about this movie is despite how rickety its plot is and how many stupid elements there are to it, it's still a fun movie. I mean, that's that's Ron Howard, I think. I mean, yeah. that, that I think is just the director being a good director in mining some good performances and some good set pieces. Uh, I, I was uh, I was just marveling in the spaces between when my anxiety wasn't through, baby fear anxiety was not through the roof. I was like... 
what was really fun was seeing them sled down a hill. And you're like, well, if this were even even in an Indiana Jones movie, you get like you get like some kind of weird close up, and then you get like a matte painting and ILM doing like di- like digital effects of like a model of a raft going down a hill or something like that. No, in this one, you get actual sleds going over the over you know the snow against this cerulean sky, and I was just like, this is amazing. This had, looks beautiful. They had great locations in this. Yeah. They filmed it in England, Wales, and New Zealand. And let's not undercount the efforts of James Horner in this film, oh, yeah. because oh. I think the music adds immensely to how you feel about the things that are happening on screen. Yeah, you know, when those horn trills are going off, and it's like dun 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 dun, 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 dun. Yeah, it, it makes you feel like something fun is happening, even if the things that are happening on the screen don't necessarily <laughs> support that all of the way. That's James Horner's superpower, because yes. remember, he used to work for Corman. <laughs> so he knows he's got to step up to overpower those visuals. And it, you know, he and obviously I think the thing is that he knows he's competing with John Williams yeah. at this point. I mean, John Williams has had, had at before this, at least two of the most memorable themes of all time, Star Wars and Superman, right? Um, and so some part of him has to realize, well, I need a main theme that's as bombastic and recognizable and epic as a Star Wars theme, but the re- and but not only, I think, is it great, also the rest of the score to the movie that's not just those moments is actually very good. Very good. incredibly good. James Horner's amazing. I mean, I, he, I've always kind of known him as the Star Trek composer. He did, I think, two and three? Yeah, that sounds right. Um, those are some great scores. I mean, he knows how to capture it, and he also has the one thing that he loves to do, and he does it in this movie. He does it in Wrath of Khan, which is doo-doo-doo-doo, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I fucking love. It's it, it's kind of his musical Wilhelm scream that he just likes to put those little, little – by the way, this movie, three Wilhelm screams. I that was them. the number I, that I counted yeah, also. Me too. Me too. <laughs> so That's how you know it's a George Lucas scene, and they have that – Sound effect that endor sound act that's like end or sound effect that's like that like some kind of weird alien bird. And I was like, oh, we're we're on endor now, are we? Yeah. The the one thing they couldn't have the one George Lucas thing is that engine sound that goes, <laughs> but everything else was in this one. Um, yeah, and even what I thought was kind of funny. I think my my favorite use of Lucasfilm sound effect is in the pretty fucking awesome wizard duel between Fenrizel and Queen Bavmorda at the end. Um, it actually starts out as a crazy wizard duel and turns into a fist fight. And Rizel punches Bavmorda in the face, and it's a fucking Indiana Jones <laughs> yeah. sound effect. It is like, holy shit, that old lady has packs a punch. Um, but th- the action in this movie, I think, is actually remarkably very good. Um, that it doesn't feel it never feels cheap it always feels like the money is on the screen it um like the fight in the snow is great i think yeah, the, I like the, the siege snow. battle at the abandoned castle tear is lean tear is lean that yeah. fight uh not only because of the awesome uh home alone traps that mad martigan has <laughs> yes. set up around uh, including one which is a crossbow that fires multiple 
like fan shaped blades at people. <laughs> it's like what is it called? Like the fleur de lis is what it's or the Boy Scout symbol. Let's Something just say like that. that. Yeah, right. it's like fires multiple of these things, and I'm like, what the fuck is that weapon? But he fired. He has like a bunch of preloaded crossbows that he's constantly picking up and shooting people with. Uh, one guy steps in a fucking bear trap, which I'm always a fan of. <laughs> and there's a battle with a two headed dragon, which is so wonderfully fucking gross. Oh, I love I love that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go just Maya. as as one po- thing that I have to point out about that two-headed dragon is that you never actually hear its name in the film, but the name is the... Ebersisk. Eber- the Ebersisk, <laughs> yeah. which is specifically named for Siskel and Eber, yeah. which I love. Um, uh, General Kale, the uh, the Darth Vader type guy with a skull mask, that, of course, you mentioned before, is the giant bald Nazi from Raiders of the Lost Ark. With he, a- he's in all of the Indiana Jones movies. Yeah, he was amazing. And... He was Braytag in Red Sonia, which is the last oh. episode that I was in. Pat oh. Roach. He was also the Dragon Man Sorcerer in Conan the Destroyer. Yes. Okay. And an ex-pro wrestler. This guy is <laughs> this guy's pretty fucking cool. Pat Roach is his name. Yes. Um, but um he um is named General Kale. And that's named after uh, film critic Pauline Kale, <laughs> who has given some of these movies a some of George Lucas's and others' movies, negative reviews. So he has a tendency. I think he's taking it out. I don't know if it's if it's uh, George Lucas. I'm thinking it probably is, or or Ron Howard. Well, so many of the names in this film are clearly George Lucas's names. Mm-hmm. Like Bav Morda is a very Lucas name. Yes. Yeah. Um, but speaking of Bav Morda, Jean Marsh is fucking amazing in this movie. Yeah, she she's chewing all sorts is. of scenery. Yeah. She does some full on Al Pacino acting in this, <laughs> and she is terrifying. She is like genuinely a really iconic movie villain in this. And if this movie was a much bigger hit, I think it was a moderate ish hit. I don't think it was, it's certainly not Star Wars level. And I think that we probably set the expectations for how well it would do at Star Wars, but it didn't do Star Wars money. But I think if this movie had hit that point, Jean Marsh would be a lot more appreciated because it was only a couple of years before this that she was playing um, a Queen Mombi in uh, Return to Oz. So that's her second evil witch character. (laughs) And she was an incredibly prolific TV actress before this, uh, particularly in the UK, where she was a companion on Doctor Who and apparently was married to John Pertwee. What? (laughs) Yes, for like two years. What? Oh my God. You can't marry a Time Lord for very long. It doesn't last. No, it doesn't. It doesn't last. Because <laughs> eventually he's just going to regenerate into a different dude. So you got three years tops, unless it's Tom Baker. Is that technically a divorce or an annulment? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to write the Pope to get it. No, you don't. So I, I'm going to say um, uh, the Daikini or you know the big people, humans in this movie, a little quick to throw around the slur peck at the Nilwins. <laughs> <laughs> they they like constantly even good guys and I'm like holy shit is this like Django Unchained for no ones? Well, I, I've kind of been wondering like do the Daikini call themselves Daikini or do they call themselves human and Daikini is what the Nelwins call them? Oh, is that a slur like, too? Is that a slur too? Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's obviously one of the name, the this, the prefix Dai in Japanese means big. I don't know what Kini means. Um, uh, if in Japanese, if you want to, I think it's Jean. In Japanese, if you want to, like, you're the bookstore man, Honya would be books bookstore. If you're the bookstore worker, you'd be Honya Jean. Um, Jean would be the 
suffix you'd put on it. So I think that I think this is him doing his like Star Wars. I'm making this sound somewhat Japanese. So Daikini is like big person, mm. right? In in a pigeony Japanese ripoff. Yeah, because yeah. I know that the brownies refer to them as Daikinis too. Yeah. Well, I I think the Nelwyn are typically are technically a type of fairy. I was reading about this on the Wikipedia, which of course led me back to the wonderfully awful novel sequels oh, yes. that we have to discuss at least a little bit in passing, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> but I do, I want to bring the it back to a minute dark sequels, to, um, to the special effects yeah. that you were talking about. Um, because this, mo- this movie comes out at a really interesting time for me because after this, we get like the abyss and Terminator two and Jurassic Park, which are all huge movies for computer-generated effects. And there's like one computer-generated effect in this entire movie right. when Finn Rizal is shape or being shape-shifted. There's kind of an early 90s morphing effect yeah. like you would have seen in like a Michael Jackson video of the late 80s or early 90s. Right. And everything outside of that is all practical effects or yeah. like stop motion. And it's interesting to me because I think this is one of the last big films that was like all practical effects. And so I think it's really interesting on that level um, because this is kind of like the last bastion of what has now become like a dying art form. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, I recall the press, uh, maybe it was like an Entertainment Tonight piece or something, uh, where they had someone from ILM come in and do an interview about, and they previewed a clip of like the, this is how we did this morphing effect at, in the part of the run up to the movie. It was when a CGI effect in a movie was such a big deal that it was a story that the market, that marketing would use to sell it. Cause it'd be like, Oh my God, it's worth the price of admission to see this one extremely difficult brand new CGI effect. Um, that was just one was enough to be like, Oh my God, we got to, we got to sell this as the best special effect that's ever been made so far in, in cinema history. That tells you a lot. Isn't yeah. Like they, it, it was still, pretty brand new i mean i remember before that it was like tron and then tron was so labor intensive to do anything that they had to like hook 20 computers up together and nobody was at the place that they wanted to spend you know a year rendering all this stuff right and way less of tron is actually computer generated than you might expect yeah the like vast majority of it except for like two shots is all rotoscope animation yeah. Oh. Lots of matte paintings and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. but there's yeah, a lot. Of, there's a lot of great matte paintings in this this movie as well. I mean, it's uh, I think and uh, movie lovers really like to t- appreciate great matte paintings. And in some of this, there's a lot of really great fantasy backdrops. I think there's a point when what was it before they get to the island where they're walking through what is a looks like a it looks like a mini grand canyon it's a series of vertical pillars that form a mesa on the top and the camera sort of cranes up and you know like willow and med martigan and somebody else are like uh, t- are tiny and so are, are tiny and they and they sort of pan up and you can see these various little rock formations sort of moving in parallax separate from each other. And all of those are matte painting elements Ooh. that was done obviously in a way to try to f- fool you into believing that this was a really three-dimensional object. And it's incredible. It's, it looks oh. great. You think about the skill that goes into this. I know that um, our good friend uh, Rob Kelly has talked about this on his podcast recently, but... When you just think about what matte painting is, it's insane because you have to create a photorealistic painting that has to look good on a massive screen. 
So that's how that's how detailed it has to be. It has to not be an obvious thing um, that was created as a oh, two dimensional image and match a piece of set set design that has already been made. Yeah. It's not just making it look photorealistic. It's also having to match scale and perspective and sort of uh, style type of a set set pieces and set elements that have already been made and not not have the the area where those things overlap look artificial or obvious that right. one of these things is flat and one of these things is rounded and that is that is a an art that i don't even know the confidence that it takes to film something like that um, and say, I'm going to put this over the backdrop. And go, like, you're filming a bunch of stuff that has empty space and going, I can make that look real and not ruin this shot. That is, that is incredible. And I think it's a bit lost nowadays in CGI because it's just made a little bit easier. But, oh my God, the, the, a couple, I think the matte painting one that I enjoy the most, matte painting mixed with a practical set, Bav Mortis Throne Room yeah. is incredible looking. Not only is it sort of made out of all this dark stone, but she sits on this large dais that's connected to all of these like staircases, and it looks like there's a bottomless pit there. <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, if you're an evil sorceress, it's a great place to throw someone you're undispleased with, <laughs> and she is frequently displeased with the people who work with her. Yeah, I mean, ignoring for the fact that Knockmore is apparently like one giant gravel pit yes. with one giant stone castle in the middle of it and nothing else <laughs> like that makes no sense but the set is amazing yeah like yeah. it cl- they clearly went to a lot of trouble to make these sets look as impressive as they possibly could with what they had available to them at the time well i mean compare this to previous episode that you were on tobiah which was the Conan uh, the Destroyer, which was also a movie where they spent quite a bit of money and time making the sets. But there's something about there's a there's a unanimity, there's a union. I'm not I'm not I'm not sure how to put it between the art the art design, the set direction, the matte painting um, to create that it looks a lot more lively, a lot more real, even, albeit ridiculous, than. You know, like a Dino De Laurentiis uh, production. It's their sets; they look a lot less setty, and the things that they push put around it give it a kind of a spark that you just don't see with other fantasy movies. I mean, this pro- probably was the best looking fantasy movie of the '80s. I think. Yeah. My, my. It's it's high up there. I think Never Ending Story would probably give it a good run for its money. Yeah. But there's something just it feels big. It feels expansive. And all the different elements of it don't feel like the departments weren't talking to each other, which is what happens with a lot of cheap fantasy movies. Like in Conan the Destroyer, there's some of the, like they go to two wizards' castles to steal something in that movie, (laughs) where they could have compressed that. But one of those wizards' castles looks amazing, and the other one looks kind of hokey. And it doesn't feel like the people who built one talked to the people who built the other. Willow, it feels like there's this kind of, the different departments, the people who make sets, uh, the people who make uh, the matte paintings, the people who are doing the costumes, the people who are doing the special effects and the, the creature uh, creation, all those people talk to each other. So when you put one of these things inside of the other, it doesn't feel like they're fighting each other visually. Um, I love the way magic looks in this movie because magic is kind of gross in this movie. It does have the, the element that you kind of want to have where Magic at its heart as a narrative tool is the basic rules of the universe are being broken at somebody's will, that they're shooting fire out of their hand or they're doing something. And like the transformations that Rizel has frequently, you see the morph 
And then, like, when she turns into a crow, this marsupial creature, I guess uh, Paul Hicks or one of our Australian friends can tell us what that animal is, um, falls to the ground and it seems to pulsate as this weird kind of ungulating thing as feathers coming out of it before it turns into a crow. Well, and that's not even a, that's not a morphing effect. You see a morphing effect at the end when it turns into like a tiger and an ostrich, but early on, that's a practical effect. That's a physical thing that they built where like a weird crow head pops out of a marsupial body. Like it's, it's nasty. Yeah. Uh, when the troll transforms into yes. the the dragon, that actually freaked me the hell out it's when gross. I was oh, yeah. seven. It looks like one of those things that a gremlin comes out of that like pod. It turns into this gross thing, and these tentacles shoot out of the side of it and rip this fur <laughs> off of it, leaving this exposed muscle and bloody sticky bone, which starts throbbing. And then these two- Smoking little... yellow smoke? Yes. yes. And these yeah. heads pop out of it looking like chest bursters. <laughs> and they're like- There's very much a uh, John Carpenter's The Thing vibe there. It's that creature turning into an even weirder, more disgusting creature. And the transformation making you just giving you that- There's feeling. a body horror element yeah. to it. Yeah, which is another one of the very weird choices that they made with this film given that so much of it is very kiddified right some of it is nightmarish like them turning turned into pigs would be easy to just go poof you're a pig but they don't say poof you're a pig they go and and (laughs) Val Kilmer's Mad Mardigan suddenly has little little tusks kind of started coming out of his mouth then his face then his hands start turning into it's a pig have hooves i looked this up and i still don't know i think they do okay so he's got like pig hoofs where his fingers are growing together i mean i think they're technically called trotters trotters oh i don't know somebody with a farm tell us in the back of my brain i want to say they're a cloven hoofed animal and that's why they are not kosher okay i've heard that before okay so then they have hooves okay what is the difference between a cloven hoof and a toe? It's in two. Oh, I know what cloven horse. means. I mean, yeah, no, but I mean, like a horse it's hoof. Two toes. Horse hoof being one long, semi-round thing. Yeah, and pigs have fingers that yeah. have big, long nails on them. Oh, the, that the nail. I'm trying to figure the nail and the hoof. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to find out if eating a ninja turtle is kosher because <laughs> they've got the they've got the toes that split at the end. No, but they may be halal. Okay. Well, it depends on know. how you butcher a Ninja Turtle. That's that's really where it comes in. Well, you have to get all the blood out. Yeah. So um, <laughs> they, these guys transfer, transform into these pigs, and it's not immediate. There's one guy whose bottom half is like pig, and he's on his back going, <laughs> and it is, it's like some shit out of the thing. And it is, it, or, the, or that scene in Alien Resurrection where you see a lot of those almost clones of Ripley where they're kind of a little more messed up. It's a, it feels a bit like that. And again, when you have things like the baby just puked on burgle cut an hour ago and I stole your baby and beer <laughs> with those guys <laughs> fucking awful. I hate them. We'll get back to them. Um, it's this discordance. And this is what I mean is that there's moments of brilliance. And then there's the stuff where you're like, God, I hope nobody walks in on me watching this part. <laughs> and it's it's just strange. It's just really strange. I, I feel like we have to go now. Everything we have to do. Uh, I don't. 
I think Kevin Pollock is generally pretty annoying. This is the most annoying thing I've ever seen Kevin Pollock do. This is like grown in a lab to be annoying <laughs> because the, the the brownies, these two little impish creatures that follow them around, fail at the two things that a, a comic relief sidekick needs to be for a movie like this. They are not useful. They are not funny. And... All of their jokes, I let's call, are the most obvious things that you could possibly say. Like when there's a fight and everyone runs away and they're left there alone, they're like, "Where did everybody go?" And the other one goes, "Is it something we said?" <laughs> they also seem to be doing a French accent, yeah, having is inhaled it, helium. Is it John Cleese from Holy Grail? Is it that? It's the the I'm it's this a this ridiculous accent. Is it is it like a Monty Python accent that they're trying yeah. to do? I don't. I, I can't it is, figure it, it out. It is the guy on top of the Monty Python castle. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is the guy serving Mr. Creosote his way in mint. It is. Except, it is. It is really annoying. And again, the joke is the most. Is that something was said? It. These are the jokes that I refer to as "Who turned out the lights?" Which is what is the most obvious thing that you could hackiest bullshit thing that you can say in this moment. And then they have them say it, including, I stole the baby! I stole the baby! And I still don't know anything they actually do that moves the plot along that you couldn't just use a little scalpel and just cut them out of the movie. Yeah, I honestly can't think of a thing. Um, although, in, you know, in my mind, these are two adult, like, borscht belt comedians, like, doing their wacky, like, squeaky voice routine somewhere in the worst resort that you have ever heard of somewhere <laughs> deep in the Adirondacks in like 1957. Oh God. It's, it just gets more depressing. And not only that, one of them is wearing a mouse skull on his head. So you're, you're also wearing these, just, oh man, it's, it is bad. It is so bad. And I keep wanting it to get, better but every time we get to them it feels like there's this needle scratch that just goes hey mike you remember when this movie was bad hey <laughs> <laughs> and it's like can't i just watch mad martin and fight those guys some more and again again occasionally these moments that are surprisingly brutal and then you have kevin pollock falling in love with a cat well yeah and i think part of the problem is like if you watch this the compositing that they do is absolutely atrocious it's, when, it's, by modern it's standards. probably the worst effect that's it's funny because i was i was making this comment to my wife is it has the worst effect of the of them doing it i assume they're doing it the same way they did with the return of the jedi where they were just cutting out film elements and then pasting them onto other frames and then photographing over the top like you would do animation mm -hmm. which is what they did for all of this stuff for return of the jedi and star wars um but then you have the things where they cut to the brownies on brownie scale sets mm -hmm. that that match and those are great every yeah. time you see them they're like oh there's a there's like the, the stalk of a plant that to them looks like a tree but obviously should be the blade a blade of grass every time they do that i'm like that's totally sold you cut two of the brownies um in their own sort of own scale set and then it looks great then you cut back to the brownies you know, on Willow's backpack, and then it looks awful because they don't track right. You know, their their yeah. their bodies aren't moving correctly. It's like they could not have been trying harder <laughs> to remind you that this is literally like inserted comic relief. 
Yeah. Like we're going to cut to the part of the movie that is literally cut into the movie <laughs> to tell a bad joke. And then we're going to go back to the action. It's like a judge ordered this to be in the movie. <laughs> it's a court ordered comic relief. I, I have to say that I didn't. Uh, I, I had the a whole flashback to when I saw this movie at the point when um, Willow is preparing himself to go into the Daikini Tavern because he needs milk. And the brownies say it's a bad idea. And there's a shot where you see most of the building in the back of Willow. And the brownie goes, the brownie like gets jostled by Willow moving and then falls into the back of his backpack. And I remember that for me, that was a huge laugh out loud moment when I was eight years old. For whatever reason, I remember that being the thing. So eight year old me thought that this was fantastic. Yeah. Like the guy going, whoa, and falling into a backpack was. Are we going to need to test this on your kids? Or is this like (laughs) a a violation of the Geneva Convention? We tried and my oldest did not last 25 minutes. And it was probably just because it gets soup just so super slow. I think the first part of the movie isn't as good as the last. I mean, there's a lot of good performances um, that you can get sort of get out of it. The second half of the movie does step it up a bit, and the most embarrassing stuff tends to be front loaded. Um, yeah, it's I I my vote for the most embarrassing thing is definitely Mad Mardigan in the in the cross dressing scene. It's it's not funny. It's terrible. It's awful on so many it's awful on so many levels in 2021 and it was awful then yeah <laughs> i don't well, know who laughs at that and i think that we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the weird lack of consent in the whole relationship between mad mardigan and sasha oh, with well. the like love potion fairy dust and like they're just how deeply inexplicable her face turn is <laughs> yeah. that yes. to the extent that I can only really attribute it to dick magic Yeah, because <laughs> she like That's... she captures Mad Mardigan he professes to be in love with her then he escapes and they run and Sorsa chases them and then he captures her and then she's like what happened to all that lovey dovey stuff and he's like oh the, the magic wore off and she's like, it wore off. Like she's, she's offended. offended. <laughs> yeah. And so she escapes. She's offended that the guy who has kidnapped her lied about loving her. Yeah. And then the next time they meet is during the battle at Tira's Lean, and she's like watching him fight the dragon with what can only be described as just like the like she's eye fucking him yeah. through this entire battle. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh. it's a bit weird because it's non-consensual to both of them. Yes. Which is weird because it, there really isn't an aggressor. And there's just two victims. <laughs> because we we have um he's he it's it's weird because she's suffering from Stockholm syndrome and he's been uh mind wiped by fairy dust. <laughs> and they somehow find a way to make it work after both of these things wear off. Yeah, and then after that battle in which you know they make out now she's a good guy. Yeah. With no explanation as to like what her actual opinions were before this about what her mother Bav Morta was doing. She was on a mission to kill a baby. Yeah. Like she's literally <laughs> trying to murder a baby. And then suddenly she's like, no, the baby's okay. I got to kill my mom. Yeah. Well, no, and there's not, no, is it no nothing, the... nothing anywhere wait, that wait, explains is this. It, I, I, I didn't get this. I, I, I watched it one and a half times. Is the implication is that the baby is going to be raised by Mad Mardigan and Sorsha at the end? I, I, I think so. At the castle with that, that she's going to have a new parents, and they're going to be the king and queen, and they're going to raise her, and she's going to be the presumptive but, successor but to the throne. Really unclear. Yeah. It's also weird because the prophecy ends up not being true. 
that the the baby is is essentially a John Connor. That in the future, <laughs> this baby will grow up and throw down Queen Bavmorda and her reign and defeat her forever. So, like Skynet, Bavmorda is going to take this baby out. Um, you know, total King Herod style. I'm going to deal with this baby. But the problem is is that Queen Bavmorda is dealt with by Willow. Willow tricks Bavmorda into killing herself in pretty pretty cool way, actually, which is that ultimately it isn't his skill at magic that he sets himself up as a sorcerer to face this woman who's, like, terrifying. He uses the same disappearing pig trick that he does at the, the festival in the Nelwyn village, and she falls for it. Well, and she trips herself to death. Yeah. She's so horrified that this, this spell that she doesn't understand work, that she falls into her ritual and it sucks her soul out and she's hit by lightning. It's kind of cool because we get a little flash of skeleton face when you get electrocuted, <laughs> which I always just want just a little bit, not full on Home Alone 2 with Daniel Stern being turned into a literal like skeleton from a science class. I just, just a little flash of skeleton. Um, so Bev Morton has been defeated. Her soul has been ripped out. She's been sent into some dark dimension that she had intended to send a Laura Dannon into. So what happens to Alora Dannon now? Is she still the chosen one? Is this like Terminator 3 John Connor? Where he's like, <laughs> well, I guess I'm just a dude now. Well, <laughs> this is probably a good time to talk about the sequel novels. Ugh. So there are three of them. They're supposedly based on a story by George Lucas and written by Chris Claremont of X-Men fame. What? Yes. Oh, and they are not just tonally dissident, but widely considered to be unreadably bad. Uh, And I only did a little bit of research into them before I got so disgusted I had to stop. (laughs) But apparently the first novel is set 15 years later. It starts with Mad Mardigan and Sorsha being unceremoniously killed and just disappearing entirely from the story. Willow changes his name to like, Thorn Drumheller. Yes, thank you. Thorn Drumheller. So the <laughs> character who name. this franchise is named after no longer has that name. Oh, and his family's dead now, so he's really dark and yes. gritty. And apparently, like, Chris Claremont just immediately goes for his favorite subject, which is, like, sexual psycho bondage, like, <laughs> evil corrupt, like, tears, or not tears, like, uh, Allura Dannon, like it's her soul corrupted and now she's evil and she dresses in bondage gear and it's just Are you sure John Byrne didn't write this? <laughs> it sounds like John Byrne. Him and Chris Claremont are in on it together, I swear. Yeah. But it it's just, if you have any love in your heart for Willow as a series, never, ever, ever, ever read these books. I've, I've heard enough. Um, the Mike Nelson of Mystery Science Theater has a podcast with the other guy from Rift Tracks, um, Connor Lestoka. And they read books that they don't expect to like. They read the first one of those books. And based on just stuff that they read on that, including passages from the book, it is bad. It is really, really bad. And it is so, it it sounds to me, and this is just my opinion based on what I know of it, that um, it feels like they all, that Chris Claremont had already written a fantasy trilogy that was bad. And then he got a call from George Lucas to say, hey, can you can you write these Willow things? And then he just put the Willow shit in there. And he's like, well, fuck, I don't have anyone like Mad Mardigan that I can just change the name of. Oh, we'll kill him. Kill them all. Kill all the stuff that's recognizable. Um, and it's totally grimdark. So, but 
I guess this is going to be outwritten of Willow continuity because they're going to be doing a Disney Plus Willow series next year. Which is interesting based on what we've seen in this film. Like, how much story was really left unexplored? Very little. Like, we know, we know so little about this universe or the characters that inhabit it. Like, what honestly is this show going to be about? I don't know. I, th- I think it's just about um, harvesting money from a, pro- <laughs> a property that Disney owns now. Well, I, we were off mic. Uh, Mike and I off mic were talking about uh, if this had been done, because this has been obviously they've been wanting to do something else with Willow for years. But now that we're in the po- sort of post pandemic, now streaming services rule everything. I have to imagine that if this were five or six years ago. It would have been a soft, a, a new Willow movie would have came out. It would have been like a soft sequel, prequel or something. Um, and, you know, the Billy Barty character would have been Warwick Davis playing him. And it would have been probably to set up a trilogy or something like that. And it would have been marketed towards a world audience as opposed to just whoever, you know, subscribes to Disney+. Plus. But now that we're in the Disney Plus model, who knows what it's going to be if, if the... Uh, if the Star Wars stuff is any indication, it'll just be a series of callbacks, mm-hmm. just the c- characters and things and themes and sticks of furniture. It'll be just callbacks to the so we're, the we're, brownies. I can't imagine oh. what they're gonna do to the brownies. But we're we're finally gonna happen. Find out what happened to the cuckolded husband from the Daikini Bar. <laughs> the, the, the questions will finally be answered that we've been ha- we've had for so many decades now. Oh, so I guess that leads us to the big question: Is Willow worth your time? I'm I'm gonna say yes. Uh, you know, I've talked to a few people about the fact that I was gonna be on this episode and what I was watching, and I would say to them, you know, we're we're watching Willow and they go, Oh, Willow with that kind of wistful, like I remember that from when I was a kid and you know, maybe it, it doesn't have that same level of impact on the youth of today, but I would still maintain that it's a fun fantasy film from the eighties. And if you have any love in your heart for eighties fantasy films, this one is worth your time. Well, I mean, um, what, what's a, What's a good starter movie to put kids on fantasy. That's not animated. I mean, this is, I mean, I just I just showed my kid Army of Darkness, so that's the, oh. that's the that's the I forgot that there was a sex scene between <laughs> Bruce Campbell and the, the heroine of it. But like, it's a great starter fantasy movie. You're not going to go to Kroll, or you're not you're certainly not going to go to Beastmaster or something. Childhood trauma, um, definitely not Conan the Barbarian. No, not going to go Conan the Barbarian. So this would be a great place to start someone before you sort of move them to. Lord of the Rings or Hobbit, God forbid, um, because those are definitely more violent and a lot scarier and they've got a lot more stuff in it where it's menacing and the tone of it is not kid, not kid like, obviously. So, yeah, I, I think it's a fine introduction. I uh, the things that are slow and dumb about it, I think, are just action adventure movie tropes. Like, I think I got so sick and tired of the number of times the movie stops when Mad Mardigan doesn't is not there and then it just then mad martin comes back and it happens and i'm like i'm already tired of this movie but i'm happy that where it ends up i think it's fine where it ends up um i won't be able to watch it again i'm sorry but that shouldn't dissuade any of you even parents from watching it because you're not necessarily going to have my experience (laughs) you're not going to be scared for a baby the whole time (laughs) um i have a lot of fond memories of this movie i remember seeing this in theaters 
I remember just how exciting it was to see a fantasy movie, and I knew that it was like, oh, the guy who made Star Wars made this, and that on it when you're when you're nine years old, that's fucking exciting. Um, so it's a flawed movie. It's a tonally inconsistent movie. It's definitely a movie that needed another draft of the script. Uh, but there's a lot of charming, great things. These moments of kind of, like we mentioned, the creature design, how gross it frequently gets, that are pretty brilliant and amazing. There's some battle sequences that are great. And occasionally you're shocked by something, like the way that uh, General Kale dies, where he's impaled on three separate swords, um, including Mad Mardigan stepping on his dropped sword with a serrated edge so that the blade pops up and then pulling him down onto it. It, it it's gross like it feels like it's the sort of sound of pulling chicken apart it's really gross <laughs> um little things like that that really just sort of stick out to me i think warwick davis is wonderfully charming and likable val kilmer is great um gene marsh is a fucking champion and she is the best part of this movie Aside from maybe the way that Mad Mardigan kills the dragon, we didn't mention that. He impales its head with a sword, pinning its jaws shut, and when it tries to breathe fire, its head explodes. <laughs> yeah, Disney, if you need, and I say need, not want, but if you need to make more movies about villainesses that you're going to try and like weirdly redeem, why would you do one about the dog murderer? Yes. When you when Queen Bev Morda is right there. Yeah. What made her sad? She's trying to kill a baby, but she's got a better reason to kill the baby than Cruella DeVille has for killing puppies. Um, just, she's like, I'm going to lose my castle. That, you know, I get that. Um, it's it's a very kind of Snow White kind of motivation, but I can see it. Um, there are parts of this movie, when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. There's bits that are just kind of stupid and childish. Everything with the brownies, every poop joke that comes into it. But for the most part, I like it. Um, I had a lot of fun rewatching this movie. Um, when it works, it really works. It's a great fantasy movie, like you said. I think it's a good starter fantasy movie. Yeah. It's a great place. I mean, go here before Lord of the Rings, because Lord of the Rings will probably render several parts of this movie a little obsolete, because it's kind of drawing from that same well. But check it out I'd, I'd say i i would absolutely with this movie give it a good watch watch it after the never-ending story but before the never-ending story part two <laughs> <laughs> i have to say one thing that just totally escaped me for the whole time is um to have a little person be the lead actor in a movie to this day still there aren't too many of them especially not too many of them that don't star peter dinklage because he's the guy you go to when you need a leading actor who's a little person um and it is it is incredibly loving and respectful in ways that munchkins and wizard of oz were not loving and respectful to people who are little people and there's something about that that hollywood just doesn't do anymore because i guess the only time you can do it is in a fantasy movie that i think is fucking criminal willow has like emotional stakes he's he does drama in this movie you see him be terrified you see him be sad you see yeah. him reunited with his wife which is remarkably touching and his astoundingly adorable children yeah I, I i just think that's a piece that it was extraordinary among the other things about it that are extraordinary that makes it a special gem of a kind of a movie and something that i think is would be worth watching just once if you only were just curious as to what this movie actually was even if it's not lord of the rings you absolutely know? 
So, Tobias, I want to thank you for coming on this show with us. It was a blast talking to you again. Well, thank you guys for having me. These are always fun conversations to have. Absolutely. And if you've got any projects or anything, or if you just want to let people know where your old podcasts are, where would they check it out? Uh, so I'm pretty sure that uh, View from the Gutters is gone from most of your standard podcasting uh, locations, but I'm pretty sure you can still find it on YouTube if you want. Uh, you can also check out my book on uh role-playing game mastering advice uh it's called the game master a guide to the art and theory of role-playing uh and you can find it on amazon.com for like three bucks i've never heard of amazon.com before Oh, it's what a, is this mysterious place? <laughs> it's his new website. I'm not sure <laughs> it's going to catch on. Filled with pee. Um, <laughs> it's available digitally. Uh, you can also get it either digitally or print on demand uh, as a pay what you want on drivethroughrpg.com. Absolutely. Please, Tobias Panchin, thank you so much for joining us. We love having you. It's so good to see you in person again. It's wonderful to see you guys too. And I can't wait for the next time. So, and we also want to thank our episode sponsors. Episode sponsors! Holy shit, there are 15 of them. Wow. Um, so special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Don Tuvi, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Gus Lindgren, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, and Kelzone. So if you want to become an episode sponsor, if you want to be as awesome as those people are, please go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or click the big green button on the right or on your phone bottom part of radio versus the Martians.com. And until then, we'll catch you next month. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.